Welcome back to Open Source Startup Podcast. This is Tim from Essence VC and Robbie from Cowboy Ventures. We have a very unique setup today, and we're super excited to have Harja, the CEO of Flux Ninja, and Matt, the principal engineer at DoorDash. Flux Ninja is an intelligent load management for cloud native apps. So, welcome, both of you. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Well, we're very excited to have you both here. And I think it would really help the audience if we start with the open source project Aperture, what that really is and how it was created. And also, Matt, your role in creating it because you're not at Flex Ninja. So this is a bit of a unique story. We'd love to get the backstory on it. Yeah. So Flux Ninja, as you know, like is a startup uh, we founded back in 2020 during peak of COVID. And this is a startup which is focusing on cloud native load management. And the company is like open source centric. So we have a project called Aperture, which is like designed to protect applications. One of the primary jobs of Aperture is like, how do you protect web scale applications from certain spikes in traffic, overload scenarios, cascading failures, and so on. And, and the company was started with an open source mindset as, and I'll give you more background about the founding team and so on, but this is my second startup. And the first startup was Netsil, which was in the cloud observability space. So Netsil was like listen spelled backwards. So we were like listening to network traffic, trying to understand how microservices were behaving on these modern applications and going from there and trying to understand from the API calls, how the application health has been and so on. So we that startup got acquired back in 2018 by Nutanix. So my co-founders, the entire team was there for a few years. Then we were like thinking hard in this space on what we could like go and do next in this space because we love the space. We love working with site reliability engineers, the DevOps practitioners, the platform teams, and so on. And we had like a lot of learnings over the last decade or so selling into this space. As I said, this is a second startup. The first one, we had a lot of exposure into wide variety of businesses and their pain points and, and so on as, as they go from monolith architecture to cloud and microservices. And one of the biggest pain points we saw with these like newer architectures, and, and Matt will also like talk about that because they like wrote a really nice blog post on, on, on how it's fundamentally wrong with these architectures. So one of the key observations we had during that time was that these applications are a network of interconnected components, right? So you, you once you make an API call, it fans out internally into a bunch of API calls, right? I mean, you have sometimes even have a fan out of like 40 API calls or 50 API calls internally, right? And in that kind of environment, you're talking about like queuing theory, we're ta talking about queues building up, you're talking about scheduling and, and you have to think in those terms. And the number one reason why these applications fail, and, and you might have heard the term cascading failure and, and applications going down on, on Black Friday or peak loads and so on, is because during these architecture are especially susceptible to like certain spikes in traffic, right? Some sort of meta-stable failures also build up positive feedback loops, creating uh, a kind of a snowball effect, causing an outage in, in the entire application chain and so on. And in order to like protect this application, you need a kind of a layer around each service that can regulate or flow control these requests coming in. Like it's almost like uh, if you're familiar with your operating systems, like you're talking about like accessing like shared resource, which is CPU with prioritization and nice values. Or if you're even getting on a highway, you have this HOV lane and so on. So scheduling, we see it everywhere. But in the API layer, um, no one had like thought about building a scheduler for APIs. And that was the whole idea behind the Aperture project. And if you notice the word Aperture, it's from like 
photography, like photo, photography, photo battery, right? I mean, you kind of like want to regulate the amount of light coming into a camera and you can controlling exposure. Just like that, we want to control the, the flux, hence the word flux ninja, like flux coming into an application so that it doesn't crash. And that was kind of the original story for the Aperture project. Yeah, awesome. I think there's a lot of nuggets we can dive into what you just said. So we'll, we'll park there because I think this space is very intriguing and interesting. And maybe we'll go to Matt because I think we'll love to hear about your story. How did you learn about Aperture? Right. What was the motivation for you to even get to this point? I saw your blog post. There's a lot of technical details in it. So maybe help mm. folks that are maybe not as technical to try to understand some of the motivation behind choosing the technology and why we need another project to help here. Yeah, sure. So my background is uh, long before uh, I I have the job that I have now, I've been uh, working on microservice architectures long before they they were even cool. And we even had the word micro before them. But we've run into the same kinds of problems like with, with larger scale microservice deployments, which is all of these failure modes that are unique to the microservice world. And, you know, we, so we talked about them in all the post and, and uh, hard to just mention them a second ago, but it's like, those are problems that are, is, they're very hard to predict in advance. It's hard to like write a test for it. It's like hard to, to even know the way in which your system is going to fail because it's usually if you're deploying microservices, you both have a lot of traffic and you're changing the system a lot. So given that, like these, these sort of new failure modes emerge all the time that are, are just, just really hard to sort of guard against with traditional techniques. So at DoorDash, we were bit by several of these as well. And I had been working uh, in particular on this notion of a metastable failure because we had had a couple of cases of those. And just in case anyone doesn't know what that, that means when something gets overloaded or breaks in some way, its capacity is reduced, but then putting the capacity back doesn't fix the problem. That there's now some new kind of sustaining effect that that keeps it from fixing itself, even when you fix the original problem. And these are, are just absolutely diabolical problems to encounter in production. And really the only way to stop them is if you know what the sustaining effect is, you can you can sort of you know reduce that somehow. But what most people usually end up doing is they just cut traffic. They just have to put a big hammer down and just let the site stabilize and then like slowly bring things back up. And this is of course hugely disruptive. No one likes to do this. So anyway, I'm working on this problem. And then I got introduced to the Flux Ninja team and and their pitch was sort of like, hey, we can apply uh, some control theory. And I was like, ooh, this sounds very interesting because I think that <laughs> that is the right answer. That's kind of how we had been thinking about the problem as well. And they're like, yeah, and by the way, we actually already done all this work and you know, we're already sort of you know building out this whole system to sort of give you a way to apply control theory approaches to sort of managing your traffic uh, with a, a sort of global perspective so that you can find new and surprising sustaining effects and, you know, help mitigate them. So, yeah, this, you know, it was a, a problem that, you know, that I happened to already be working on. And this solution was roughly what we were thinking about building ourselves anyway. So that worked out really well. One thing that's really interesting is not only, Matt, from your perspective, are you like working closely with the company as maybe a potential design partner, which is usually 
where you see a lot of like big companies get involved with smaller startups. But it seems like from the post and everything, you're pretty like intimately involved. So can you talk a bit about how that happened and like the depth of your involvement with the project and also, yeah, your decision to do that? Because it is amazing for an early stage startup to have someone like you that's involved. But like, how did that come to be? I think it, in some ways it's it's kind of luck. I mean, I think a lot of places that have problems like this, like there's somebody in there somewhere who, you know, cares about this problem, but it's often hard to, you know, sort of get connected with other folks who are working on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I had been working with some academics that were that were sort of researching these kinds of failure modes and what we might be able to do about it. So that happened to, you know, that was a, a sort of, you know, happy coincidence that we had, we had sort of gotten introduced. But, you know, and so so what we did was we, we actually had, there are a couple of researchers that we sponsor at DoorDash to, to sort of work on some problems like this for their own research, but just things that we were interested in as well. And one of them was working on this. So we put together a little test bed to to sort of, you know, validate how such a thing would work, which was convenient because he had actually already built a similar thing. Because I mentioned we were we were thinking about building some other approach ourselves to this. And so he was able to kind of repurpose the the existing you know test bed that we had and apply aperture to it. So these kind of like it's kind of like luck or serendipity. I sometimes say it like so we were as a startup as entrepreneurs, like we're always looking at problems which are like a few years out, like which are non-obvious to a lot of the mainstream right now. So so Matt and the DoorDash team has been like smart. Like, so they they have been facing these issues firsthand and they were like also like had a team which could understand these issues and realize that what the right solution is. Now we have like a lot more enterprises out there who are facing this problem on a daily basis, but they don't even like know what kind of a solution could solve this problem. They're like either throwing more compute at the problem or manual intervention, some pager going off. So coming from the observability space, I kind of like knew like that the whole idea of doing site reliability, which is very reactionary, is not going to fly in the future. Like as we go web scale, you have to apply control theory, systems thinking to the problem uh, versus like try this like a manual intervention every time. So yeah, so we were like, a few years ahead, like even this product game being like, this is like for the enterprises of the future who are like going and using these heavy APIs, like think of open AI and calling this AI APIs, which are like 20, 30 seconds turnaround times, or like you're having a lot of these small mice APIs coming in, mice versus elephant APIs is how, how I will uh, categorize the future. So in the future, like we're going, looking at both directions. So we're seeing companies which are like DoorDash who are handling millions and billions of these API calls on a daily basis, right? And on the other hand, we are seeing some of the enterprises are now making very, very heavy API calls to third party. And all of them have like the same failure mode. Either they get rate limited, they have to work backwards to prioritize, to schedule the traffic properly. Otherwise, they all go into like bad states. And without systems thinking, it's not just not sustainable, the entire practice. I'm really intrigued because like you said, this is not obvious solution to most folks yet. And, you know, as we continue to see the industry moving forward, I think this, the bet is everybody will start to hit a lot more similar problems in the future. And we have to start having preventive measures like these. Where did you see this? Or what, where did you get the idea from? Because I think NetSeal, when Nintonics acquired, it was just, it was more of a discovery. I just want to see microservices, connected dots, right? There wasn't no... I don't know what the full story in that still is, but there wasn't no prevention built in, right? And 
Did you learn or was this a plan for NetSill that you're moving towards the bill here? Or there was something at Newtonics that you observed the same problem that you also carried over here? I'm just curious, like what got you to observe and learn and actually have the full belief that something like this is the right solution? It's actually interesting. It's a combination of many things. Like, of course, NetSill experience was the biggest factor here, given that after observability, the next logical thing is controllability. Like if you go and look at Wikipedia, like they're just two sides of the same coin, observability and controllability. And once that problem in the industry was solved, like if you like just rewind 15 years back before Datadog, Splunk, and all these companies existed, new relics of the world, like we had like point solutions or like non-scalable solutions, right? In observability. And now we have a common platform everyone like builds upon, like whether it's open source Prometheus ecosystem or commercial solutions like Datadog. Now that platform's in place, like now you have centralized how we do observability. The next step would be how do you centralize controllability? But now let me rewind my own life story, like a little bit back. Like, so I've worked, actually, these ideas are not new. This is systems thinking, right? So my career, I started at Alcatel Lucent in telecom. So we were building carrier grade systems. So we were building like call servers having your mobile phone calls, right? And in that, we had the same overload control system. So we had to be like five nines available. And in order to do that, we had to like load shed. So for instance, during peak loads, we will load shed SMS traffic first. 911 calls always get the highest priority. So these practices have been in other domains. It's just that in the uh, this whole cloud space has been kind of a wild west, to be honest. Like it's more like an art than a science or systems thinking. People just put together a stack. Uh, you have VCs funding these hyper growth startups, but a lot of times they have a lot of tech there. Their stacks are not very designed with like a high availability in mind. And then they have to retrofit all those ideas. So this idea got shaped because of multiple factors, like NetSill being one of them, my early career being in telecom and, and carrier grade systems. And all those ideas distilled into like building like a platform that could handle like prioritization, load sharing, rate limiting in, in, in a single system. Think of it as a flow control as a service. And we see the this problem like everywhere. Like if you go on a highway, as I said, like you have prioritization. When you get on a on ramp, you then there is always like a uh, like a metering happening. Um, you only let certain number of cars onto a highway from a ramp. Like we see it everywhere. Like I mean, operating systems, networking. So these ideas are not new, essentially. I think one thing that is new is more people are writing more microservices than ever. Like that's <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> like what what has changed, and the failure modes are different and much harder to reason about. Whereas you know things like like metering lights on a on an on ramp, like those are pretty straightforward to sort of understand the the the, the signals and the, and their effect. But a complex microservices deployment with you know, like you, you you mentioned maybe there's, you know, 40 way fan out. That's just getting started. You know, like sometimes there's 100 way, 1000 way fan out, depending on what this thing is doing. And certainly there are hundreds of different services that are, are deployed. And, you know, they're all crisscrossing, talking to each other. It's just super hard to, to reason about a system like that. And, and especially about what you should do when it gets overloaded, which I think is actually the, the big unsolved problem with microservices is just like that. Failure modes are unique, but in particular, the overload case, because it doesn't flow like a road all in one direction. It's like a twisty spider web of 
<laughs> you know, things calling each other in both directions and all over the place. It's interesting. Like if you read the Black Swan book, so these are like Black Swan events. So they they are unpredictable, but very common. They're not uncommon. And as Matt said, as more and more companies are adopting microservices and you're talking about Kubernetes and containers along the way, I mean, that's a path to microservices architecture. You are going to see a lot more companies running into this issue. Like if you look at 15 years back, only telecom companies ran into this kind of load problems. So you had folks at Bell Labs, like really smart folks, figuring out queuing theory and doing fundamental research here. But now we are seeing all these like mainstream companies, even like any small application can go viral the next day and they have to start thinking about overload problems. So we see a future where some of these best practices that we are like trying to define here will be baked in from the applications from day one. For instance, if I'm starting a new app today, fresh out of, let's say, college dropout, I'll probably pick up Kubernetes or some like modern architecture because I know that I won't run into 100 other issues if I'm picking up the best practices or the best architecture. Because that's our hope. So as as Matt, as being one of the, I would say the, the, the avant-garde here, like who have understood the problem, has adopted it. But I think the, the mainstream audience in the next couple of years, more and more companies will just bake it in. That's the hope. Awesome. Now that's super, super helpful context. I'd also love to dig into Aperture and like why you released it as open source. I don't believe before that it was like, where did you kind of start and why did you decide to make Aperture open source and like why the timing on it? And that's a good question, actually. And it's not an easy answer as well. Like there are many reasons to do open source projects and, and sometimes the right reasons and sometimes there are wrong reasons, right? For us, the primary reason was that this is sitting inside the data plane of the application, right? So in this ecosystem, you have to be open source. Everything around us in that ecosystem is open source, whether you're looking at service meshes or middleware libraries, you're looking at Kubernetes itself, the entire ecosystem is open source. It's very hard to play in that ecosystem being a closed source. Even from a security point of view, getting just approvals to run this thing are impossible if it's proprietary black box. So we have, I mean, it's just the nature of cloud infrastructure business. Like it's much easier. And there are various ways to monetize cloud. I mean, companies like MongoDB and others have shown in the past how to do um, successful like uh, commercial solutions on top of open source, but it's just the nature of business. And the second reason was Netsil was proprietary, right? My first startup. So there was some like desire uh, deep inside that we could have larger impact in terms of legacy we leave behind in the world as, as repeat founders, if we could do open source. So we have already like, had a decent exit, right? So this time around, the motivation was like less about uh, money. I mean, or, or, or that kind of motivation. The motivation was to really leave behind a good legacy and open source, we feel, is, is a great route. I mean, it's out in the open. Anyone can use it. Everyone knows what's going inside. And, and there's a sense of community, right, that you're trying to build around this project now. It's really interesting. To, to, if you look at the landscape, because I think want to dive in deeper Obviously, Aperture, this is a new open source project. I think this flow control as a service is not new to the industry, but definitely not like everybody has adopted open source project like this everywhere, right? Things do take, like you said, we need to have a lot more education, evangelism, right? Where we start to see the behavior changes. And I wonder like, what is the thought process to trying to able to pinpoint because reliability is not new, right? Control theory is not new. Flow control is not new. A lot these things are not new, which is good. You don't you have to re-educate everything from the ground up. But when you put it together, though, I think there's like some urgency, right? Okay, is your microservice is growing, like you said, fan out to be a lot of connections? Are you getting overloaded? Do you see metastable like failures happening? 
that you cannot know how to prevent, right? You cannot, you cannot do it after a fact, right? You have to do it fast enough. I think that's part of the metastable paper is talking about a lot of these has to be prevented fast enough to, to not able to like spiral down the road. Are there key points you're trying to make this into like a wider spread issue? Like how are you thinking about making this like a larger topic that people already experienced, but may not as widely discussing at the moment into something a lot more commonly discussed. I wonder how, how do you see that switched will happen? Yeah, this is like the typical crossing the chasm kind of a scenario, right? So on the one hand, you have like this, the leaders like DoorDash who are experiencing this like on a daily basis. So they have been trying to solve this problem and the companies which have solved it, companies like Netflix and Google and Facebook, which I consider a little bit further ahead in terms of like, let me put it this way. Anyone who has achieved web scale has to solve this problem. So in a way, you cannot go web scale uh, without solving this problem, this fundamental problem. The question really is like, how fast the industry is going to evolve? I think the bottleneck is now actually these tools. If you look at cloud infrastructure, they have been commoditized. Like cloud is a commodity, like which was not like 10 years back. Only a few companies had access to like these self-serve uh, deployment systems. But now like everyone can do it. Kubernetes has made it a commodity, right? So all this is now a commodity. Now even observability I consider is now a commodity with all the open source solutions that have come up. When NetSeal started, like even scalable databases to store time series was still an unsolved problem, right? So all these are not becoming like high cardinality data was a problem, right? Now the next battleground is going to be these systems. like. Without solving this problem, you cannot take more and more enterprises web scale. But the thing is that then there are always risks with a startup. Like sometimes your idea is solid, but you're too early for the market. Now that is something that we ourselves are curious and our team is curious to see where this is going to head. Like we have, yes, some of these customers like uh, or users like DoorDash, like which are using the system, but we, we don't know whether the rest of the world is ready for it yet. So there is a lot of the other part of it is the evangelism, right? Where we are trying to do a lot more content. Uh, so DoorDash's blog was kind of the one of the, I would say the very comprehensive piece on this topic. Topic, like explaining the problem statement and the solution, but now we are like following it up with like more podcasts or talks or blogs. We will be presenting at SRECon this year in Asia, in Singapore. Like, so we're trying to do a lot of these bottoms up, ground up kind of evangelism. It's challenging, <laughs> just to summarize. I think like a couple other factors that are, are related is like people are starting to think about or you know converge around ideas that we now call service mesh. But, you know, people were doing things like that before, but we didn't have that word. And now, like, now it's become a thing. And as, you know, and like like you mentioned, uh, around observability, especially open telemetry and like the, the sort of clever way that you can get, you know, sort of hotel agents and your sort of transparently kind of enable new functionality. Like both of those things, like service mesh and hotel, I think are factors that as they get more more broad adoption, like... I assume like more people will will keep using those who, who you know who who haven't already, and then uh, something like like Aperture like makes a lot more sense in a world like that, where where you've already got kind of like hooks into your infrastructure to see what's going on and make changes, and you just need to you need something to drive you know to sort of actuate those changes and. If you look at the entire history of computer science, like it's been abstraction on top of abstraction, right? So we've been just moving from one battleground to another and taming the complexity in each layer. So the world wants to go web scale. More and more companies want to go digital and web scale. And this is the only route to do it. Actually, you have to have 
flow control. And fundamentally, that's the most fundamental problem, just like observability has to be solved and someone has to go and solve it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, uh, this is the thing is like, it's this technology that we have built is going to happen. It is much needed. The only question is when, like, is the world ready to go web scale right now in the next one or two years? Is it going to take longer or not? That actually decides the place of Flux Ninja as a company, not Aperture as a project. I think the project's going to be fine, given that open source has much bigger longevity than lifespan of a single company. So I actually want to ask about, because I think a lot of these are probably lessons, you, a lot of the things you learned, like I said, past experiences from working at Telecom and, and that's so... When it comes to like the category creation or defining or even picking the right direction, what to do as a company... What are the key lessons you learned from NetSail days, you know, going to McDonald's? I think there must be some lessons you learned that you don't want to repeat or things you don't want to repeat back then. You're doing something different or you want to continue moving forward, things you've done well. What are those things you've learned from NetSail carrying into Flex Ninja? I mean, I would say a lot of lessons every time it's been like a new challenge and a new mistake. I mean, if you're in like, an, I would say a new founder starting and like thinking about starting something, then yes, you have to pick up some like first of all, a large market, as Matt just said, like the timing in terms of commercializing something like this makes sense because we see a lot more companies adopting microservices. And it's just not just one thing. There are like a lot of other things that have to happen before something like this is needed. As I said, it's a, you cannot be bigger than the wave. It's a wave in the industry. We are just riding the wave, right? So you recognize the wave that this is going to happen. And then you're like building a part of that solution. You cannot like create a wave on your own, but you can ride it. And that's what we're trying to do here. And, and that's the first part of starting a company. You recognize some sort of a trend that you can like build upon. And the second part is like, yes, the market has to be huge. The third part is like, there has to be a keen, I would say, non-obvious technical insight. Like if it is obvious to most people, 10 other companies are already doing it. And in a competitive world, like you... <laughs> then it's very hard. Like you have to be the first to plant the flag. Like it's very hard to do a catch-up game. Like some people have done a good catch-up, but it's typically very hard with VC funding. Like you're just then, if you're a leader in a category, then people kind of remember you as the definitive company in that space. So for example, when you look at like Datadog is one of the definitive companies in the monitoring space, for example, like which I admire. And there are like a lot of other companies which I would admire like that. So that's the key thing, right? So if you're starting out, so these are the things to look out for. And these are the patterns you start to recognize if you spend a lot of time in the industry. And bringing in the fresh thinking helps. Like sometimes you're like looking at a lot of these, like in a bigger company, like you're solving these problems, but it's not obvious that, hey, you could take this piece out and make it more mainstream. So even that takes some thinking that this flow control has been solved inside Google, but I don't know how generic it was to be applied to the mainstream world. So we also had to like approach and solve the problem in a different way for the mainstream users versus like uh, being part of a vertically integrated system. So that's another pattern like I've looked at, like you have all these like big companies, uh, web scale companies solving so many interesting problems. They have a lot more potential to like spin out these open source projects or, or companies, but sometimes it's not obvious to engineers over there that these things are commercializable to the larger audience. Yeah, I think one thing about this space that you're going into as well, I think definitely given the sort of the early adoption we're talking about and also the load has to be, you know, at a decent scale, right? You don't see it at small scale, like the web scale or similar type of systems. To summarize my, what I'm trying to ask is, what is the sort of the challenges trying to sell to the mats of the world? You know, the, I think mats, you saw the project, you saw the need, you already see it coming. You're, you're, you have a pretty prepared 
you know, mind and state coming into this. And I don't think every single SRE out there using Kubernetes all are in the same headspace. So probably talk about a little bit like what is the thought process of finding, you know, the the mats, you know, talking to it. And what are the some things you already learned, Harjit, like reaching out to to folks like this and, and getting sort of that interest and moving forward into even trying to use the project. What are those key lessons here? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like it's a patience game. So first of all, like we're talking to people like Matt, like for example, principal engineers or architects who are able to understand the problem and then change their roadmap because even they have not even budgeted time for something like this. So they have been like reacting to these incidents on a daily basis without a proper solution. But once they see it, now they have to like switch gears and start focusing on and adding it. So we're seeing a lot of that happen. Now, now I would say like we say the word web scale, but to be honest, people see this problem even at smaller scales. Like it's more prominent at web scale, like the failures are much more disastrous to the brand image and so on. But even at smaller scales, like these issues have been there. Right. So if you are uh, even as mundane as like running a Jira installation, enterprise Jira installation, it goes down all the time when someone makes a heavy JQL query or something. Right. So you see this problem even on traditional IT software, like it's been there. So the thing is that, yeah, so it's a patience game, as I said, like we are trying to go out and educate the people. This is the right approach. And once they've been like burning their hands enough, they will have to eventually pick it up. But as of today, like unlike observability, where people know they have to buy observability, they're always on the market looking for solutions or considering or different approaches. This is something which has not been on the radar yet. Now, that's a unique challenge we had from the NetSill days versus this. So when we did NetSill, so Datadog has already educated the market or New Relic had spent millions of dollars educating the market itself and creating a category. And before New Relic, there was Wiley software and so on. Like if you look at like what happened in APM, like Putting an agent in Java agent inside your code was unthinkable 15 years back. So if you look at the history of Wiley, App Dynamics, New Relic, so they created that category, that space, and it was a lot of patience and it happened across one or two companies. So it wasn't even in the lifetime of one company, it took like a few companies and until like open telemetry commoditized with an open standard, that's where it culminated. Now open telemetry is now everywhere, right? And the same thing is going to happen here. That's why I wanted to go open source from the day one so that uh, this becomes kind of the definitive project in, in this category and creates a category. That's fascinating. And I'm curious now what your plan is as far as growth. Like, Are you going to be pushing on a more traditional open source growth path where you'll kind of evangelize the concept and community and hope to draw people in and then kind of find more math, for lack of a better way of framing it that way? Or are you looking kind of trying to like spearfish other fairly sophisticated end leaders to also evangelize in a way that that Matt has. That's right. I think we're more like trying to light as many fires as we can. We are trying to find more, like build a community here. Eventually that's the thing right now we have like DoorDash and us, like we are partnering, uh, but we are like also trying to see like other potential collaborators who could join the project. And eventually even at some point, our hope is like, this can be a CNCF project. It's too early to do that because there's like a lot of like architecture iteration we are doing with like companies like DoorDash. But eventually that is our desire. So so there are like multiple things happening like on the project side. We are going to all these events. So for example, my co-founders are right now at KubeCon Amsterdam having all these conversations with, with people there and we're getting like new stars on the GitHub repository since then. So yeah, so it is uh, more like the strategy of light as many fires as we can and see how many we can like take to production and, and make them successful with the project. Every other metric is secondary. Like it's not about revenue right now for Flux Ninja. Like this is really about how many customers we can take to production 
and solve this use case for them in a repeatable manner. So I think switching sides, Matt, I think I want to ask you, since you're on to talk about Sumwanda, I guess the user or even customer side, what are sort of like the most common challenges when it comes to like even adopting an open source project or an open source project based from a, a, a startup? Like what yeah. are the things you have to kind of go through to maybe clear internally or to figure out, like, I, I'm sure it's, it, you, you can't just take any off-the-shelf open source project and stick into production <laughs> that easily. There must be some like things you have to go through. And I was just wondering what are the things you've, you have to do in typical scenarios in this sort of infrastructure projects? Yeah. I mean, like, so it's useful to to draw a distinction between like there there are a lot of open source projects that that we use that are easy <laughs> to phase in and out because you know they're kind of part of the call graph if you like on a leaf <laughs> and you can change them and it's it's far far less difficult <laughs> or or risky the really interesting ones are like what about a new database or what about a new thing that touches every single network request that you ever make ever those are much much more complicated you know so but but to be clear we still need to improve our traffic infrastructure and we still need to improve our storage infrastructure so we are adopting different technologies there but when you think about especially the the network stuff like live network processing making changes to that requires very careful consideration like the biggest outages that we ever have are pretty much because we changed the configuration in the networking this is i think is pretty typical in the industry like even when you read about like all the big google outages or whatever it's always like oh we changed something in the network and then we you know brought the whole thing down so, you know, that's kind of how it goes. So when dealing with things that are are related to the, you know, to the traffic flow, we have to be very, very careful. And, you know, we got to build a test bed for it and, you know, validate it for a long time and try to try to find a way to ease into it. So that's kind of on like the the, the technical and, and migration side. I think the the really interesting question, though, which which I, I think is what you're getting at is like, how do we convince ourselves that we can trust this thing and this company? It's a much harder, much harder question to answer. But I guess like for me personally, what I look for is, is can I actually understand what this thing is doing and like what can we do if it's not working right? Like, do we have the controls in our hands that we can fix whatever problem we run into? without requiring necessarily some other company, you know, to get paged and to like have to, you know, get involved with 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 fixing some problem. Like it it's sort of not workable for us to need a, another company, especially a small company, to be like in the loop if something breaks. So I mean I, I think that's that's one thing. And then the second part is is kind of like building the confidence on the rest of the team. I mean, there are a lot of people at DoorDash besides me. <laughs> so while, while that might be, you know, the main thing that I look for, like, it's kind of about like building some trust that will get the support that we do need, but that like everybody that's on the DoorDash side is able to operate this, this system effectively and independently. Like they can understand what it does. 
they understand the implications, how to make smart operational choices with it. And yeah, I mean, especially in this, you know, this kind of a thing, I think that's, it's fairly unique to the space. And so I wish it was easier, but you know, it's not, it's not just like sticking something on the end of a data pipeline, deciding whether you like it or not. And if you don't like stick something else on the end of a data pipeline, this is like foundational infrastructure. So it takes, it takes a little bit longer. This has been a unique challenge, even from the project point of view. Like a lot of the open source projects start in a larger company, they get battle tested before they uh, are released to the wild. And you know that, hey, this has been tested over billions of API calls at Uber or something. And those kind of projects are very, very popular. And then they got VC funding and they start like commercializing them, right? In our case, like we had this like the upside down completely, like we had to go outside in to users like DoorDash who could understand. So that's why being open source helps. So they understand the solution. And then how do you then battle test it in those environments is, is what our team has been doing with them pretty much. That's why I said like for us, the goal is how many we can take to production in the next six months or so, right? And that that's the key metric for us. I mean, I, I would say that like by it being open source, that makes it dramatically easier for a, a large team to sort of get, you know, get the confidence uh, and trust because they can just look at it and try it out themselves. If this was a some binary black box or whatever, I'm not sure how it would work in our environment anyway. Yeah, I think that's a super important point to highlight because I think this is one of the benefits of open source, just the, the amount of trust that you can develop that can really open doors when it comes to like go to market and design partners. I'm wondering, Matt, was there anything else that when you were thinking through, when you had just met the team, like the Nettel experience or like different things that gave you trust in the technology? Because I think so many really early stage startups kind of struggle to build the the kind of trust that Harjot and team have built with you. So like what were some of the specific things or conversations that built that trust for you? Well, let's see. I mean, the, the background of the team is super solid in the you know infrastructure space, and so like I mean, we were very quickly moving past the pleasantries and talking about very interesting things. And also because I didn't actually know who these people were, I just went right to the hardest possible problems, and I was like, okay, you guys want to talk about flow control? I'll tell you that like we have this exact problem. It happened just the other day. What would you guys do? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was one of our one of our very first uh, conversations. And they were like, oh, yeah, no problem. Well, we would just have to make sure we're in between all of these points. And then you would write a policy and you'd do the thing. And, and I was like, yeah, these folks have have definitely like seen these kinds of problems before. And it was, you know, sort of unflappable with my with my sort of challenging scenarios. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think the short answer is they just have a ton of experience. And that is pretty valuable, at least if yeah. you want to talk to somebody like me. As a startup founder, like that's another thing we wanted to make sure that we are talking to people we don't know. Because sometimes when you are talking to and building a product with people, you know, you don't get like the right feedback or the right quality of feedback. Now with Matt, we had no relationship prior. Like we had not known him from Netsil days. So he was not in a friend circle or something. Like this was completely like cold introduction. And we were just talking about hard problems on the first call. And like another thing that's important, like a lot of people build the product in a vacuum. Uh, and I've seen a lot of founders do that in the close circle. They don't get the right feedback. And once it hits a real market, it starts like you don't see the same traction, right? Or there you start uncovering a lot of serious defects. So that that's what we're trying to prevent here, like working with like people who are not known to us 
in the past. I'm always very skeptical about, you know, anybody's pitch for anything. And so I was probably a little extra harsh on this one, but uh, it all worked out. <laughs> Everybody, uh, we ended up all, all seeing eye to eye on, on this solution. Yeah, I think this is actually a very hard story. You know, like you said, Harja, like most infra projects, you either have to be working in a company, use, you know, like the, the typical Kafka cases and things like that. And even if you look at Istio or Envoy, or Envoy is another, you know, worked in a product at a company and came out, right? Istio took a community and a bunch of people working on it for a while and then and then gained adoption. So I think this is is a really cool story to see how this, this went about. We talked about SL lessons to hear. What are the lessons you learned on this journey that you think will be great advice you can share for other open source founders? And particularly ones to be working on open source infrastructure, you know, a challenging layer like this. Right. So it's still very early, like, but yes, there has been some challenges, right? Especially like in, like, first of all, like in, this is not unique to open source, but doing a company during COVID has been like very interesting. Like <laughs> during that sale, like days, we had like 15 developers all under one roof. So we could iterate brainstorm, but this has been really challenging. Like even not meeting customers, like I've never met Matt, for example, face to face. So we've always been on Zoom calls and the same with our team. So we're talking about dev team and we have also got a, like a cloud product with the UI team. So, so those kind of challenges were new to us. So we had like few false starts until as a CEO, I had to get down on the ground and start coding until you are in the trenches. It was very hard to like just manage the team and expect that they will build the product. So the first six, three or four months, we had some teething issues with COVID and then we finally figured out. But the way this has been set up is that if it's working in such a remote fashion, like even from the open source point of view is great. Now we can have a community which can be anywhere in the world. We have said like put enough process in place to do that, right? And in terms of like open source, as I said, like our reasons to go open source were like, it's just the nature of business, right? So when you're talking about going into critical data plane and handling network traffic, you cannot be proprietary. So that was our main reason to go open source. So, so we're still learning. So this company had to be done open source. There was no other, no other way around it. Awesome. And Matt, I'd love to end also with maybe a learning from you for other like really early stage open source startups that would like dream of working with someone like you as one of their early design partners or evangelists. Well, I, you know, I mean, the the way that we got introduced, you know, like I said, some of it was just like really luck. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's somebody that's like a me at just about everywhere that you would go. <laughs> And the, the question is, how do you how do you find that person? And I think that's the really interesting challenge. Like, like you know, somebody's working on it. Like, whatever new problem it is that you're also working on, like someone else has this problem too. It's just you, you gotta you gotta find that right person. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's that's the hard part for sure. <laughs> I wish there was an easy answer, but I it's, I don't know. Maybe realize if you're not talking to the right person, <laughs> like sooner, and don't waste your time. Sometimes you have to like build and show it, show and tell. Like, yes, you can sometimes just like ideate, but then it's very hard to get like, for example, Matt is a busy person, like to get on his schedule and get a time and then just do the talking is not enough. Like we actually had something being built over the last year and a half before we even were ready to show it. So that's a big risk we took. So we had built this in a lab for like a year. We kind of like knew that hey, this is something needed. 
but we didn't also want to like keep building the lab for too long. So they were, at the right amount of time, we could feel that now it's ready to get feedback from the real world on whether we are off. And, and we were a little bit off, actually, to be honest. Like one of the key insights we got from DoorDash is that we have to take SDKs seriously, software, uh, the libraries. So we initially built the solution completely on service mesh, hoping that that technology will take off like crazy. But when we were like talking to DoorDash, we realized that, hey, we have to work with existing Java applications. So there were some pivots we had to do, but we couldn't also go too early because if you're in the conceptual stage, like even that doesn't work and, and people are not going to do any follow-up meetings on that as well. It's It's very challenging. Yeah, and I think that really speaks to your comment earlier, Harjet, about domain experience and really like knowing your your area super well so that you can come and impress people like Matt with what you've built and your insights. This was fantastic. This was a great conversation. We really appreciate both of you being here with us. So thank you so much. Thanks for having us.